You're listening to the Actor Aesthetic Podcast, episode 112, featuring special guest Omar lopez Sapero of Broadway's On Your Feet. Let's get started. What's up, everyone? This is Maggie Barra, and welcome to another episode of the Actor Aesthetic Podcast, where I take you behind the scenes of the theater industry. The Actor Aesthetic Podcast is produced every single week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at actoraesthetic.com slash podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Actor Aesthetic or join our Facebook group, the Actor Aesthetic Alliance. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get on to the show. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Actor Aesthetics 2020 Holiday Gift Guide is here, and we are aiming to make shopping for actors and theater kids more personal, thoughtful, and fun. Searching for the perfect gift for your actor friends? Or thinking of supporting small businesses created by artists suffering from the pandemic shutdowns? Well, I have 25 gift ideas any performer or Broadway fan will adore. Just head to actoraesthetic.com slash holidays to shop now. Well, hey friends, it's Maggie Barra here. Thanks for joining me this week for another episode of the Actor Aesthetic Podcast. I am so excited to share this one with you because this is a new friend of mine and it is none other than Omar Lopez Sapero. Omar was last seen in the off-Broadway production of The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Other Broadway and off-Broadway credits include the original Broadway cast of On Your Feet, the OBC of American Idiot, and the Public Theater's Central Park Concert of the Cape Man. He has worked regionally all around the country in the world premiere of The Flamingo Kid at Hartford Stage, the revisal premiere of Paint Your Wagon at the Muni, Guys and Dolls at Tuts, and Evita both at the Fulton Theater and Bass Street Theater as well as the national tour. I met Omar just several days before doing this interview on a panel and let me tell you he is filled with wisdom and knowledge about this industry. So I am so excited for you to tune in today as we hear a little bit more about his backstory and what he's learned along the way. In this episode, you'll hear how Omar switched degrees from musical theater to vocal performance, how he spent 10 years working on bringing the unsinkable Molly Brown revival to New York City, and how he balances a relationship within the theater industry with his brilliant wife and fellow actress, Ariana Rosario. So, without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat. So, I know you grew up in, or at least near Atlanta, so how did you initially get involved in theater? So, when I was, I grew up in the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta. Um, my, my dad was a doctor, and uh, my mom was an awesome mom, housewife, and uh, we were actually... Um, six kids so it's a yours mine and ours family it's uh the Puerto Rican <laughs> Brady Bunch we used to call it because it was my mom had a boy and a girl my dad had a boy and a girl and together they had a boy and a girl and so um it was my God, big old family and um you know we my parents loved music and my dad was always a big opera fan and he would listen to like the three tenors so I was always exposed to kind of that type of music 
um, but they didn't have any kind of um, artistic background of any mm. sort. And um, so it was kind of a, I'm really super, super grateful to high school programs and theater teachers and, and course teachers that recognized that I had a talent. I mean, I had an interest in it, but I was mostly an athlete growing up. I mean, I, huh. I bless my mom. I mean, she sent me from, took me from one practice to another practice to another practice. I was a big <laughs> soccer player. And then, but I was, I mean, I, I played basketball, baseball. I was in gymnastics, swimming, everything. And I think my mom probably put me in every sport possible just to wear me out because <laughs> I had so much energy. Um, but I'm so grateful. I rem- I'll never forget this. I was, uh, it was, first year of middle school and in our school system you get to select um, an elective um, to take and they take you around to the band orchestra chorus and I think it was like um, technical stuff like where Mm. you build machinery and stuff like that and so I I remember going to the band and I went to the, the chorus, but what I was like absolutely floored and mesmerized by was the orchestra. And they brought in this um, professional um, cellist from the Atlanta Symphony wow. and played uh, Flight of the Bumblebees. And I literally was like, <laughs> just like blown away. I thought it was like the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. And, and it's interesting that I fell in love with that instrument because I think it's one of the instruments that sounds the most like a voice. It sings like yes. a voice. And um, so I, I fell in love with that instrument. I joined the orchestra for two years. But as I mentioned before, I, you know, I was very involved in, in sports and um, you get to a point when you're playing an instrument that you kind of only are gonna get as good as you put the time into it. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I kind of reached that plateau where I loved doing it and I loved the music, but I couldn't devote the time that it required to really get better. But I had gotten the music bug at that point. So eighth grade, um, being a hormonal teenager, I was like, oh, there's really cute girls in the chorus. I can go into the chorus. I joined the chorus and I, I mean, my I think at that point my life kind of changed because I found one that I loved singing, but two that I had a voice. and. From that, I joined the theater drama club. Um, I, I was never short of things to get involved in. <laughs> bless but, your mother. <laughs> um, God bless her. So I, you know, I started like kind of getting a bug for it. And, um, you know, I, I have to say that I feel like there was some sort of divine intervention that kind of pushed me into these things. All these little things happened at the right time to push me in a certain way when I was gonna become a freshman in high school, it turned out that they were doing MAME that year and they were planning on casting a girl to play little Patrick because he's an 11 year old and they didn't feel like they would have, um, you know, a guy, a freshman or a sophomore that would be willing to play an 11 year old, <laughs> that believably play 11 year old. But then in comes me who was as a freshman in high school, 4'11". No way. Still had um, <laughs> a nice little boy soprano voice. <laughs> and, and I like literally snuck in there and they had me audition for it. And they said, holy cow, like he's, he's, he's it. 
So I ended up playing that part my freshman year. That was my first musical that I ever did. I definitely got the bug. I got, I was very involved in theater and music at that point in time in high school. But I have to say in my high school, public high school outside of Atlanta, hugely talented pool of actors and singers. Yes. So in my high school, I didn't think I was the best in my high school. I mean, there was really, really talented people that have gone on to have professional careers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, it was really just a hobby and something that I loved. I didn't really think of it as a career um, until my senior year of high school. And, um, you know, I had been, like I had mentioned before, I, I played soccer and I thought I was going to maybe play soccer in college. And my chorus teacher said, I bet you, you get a bigger scholarship in music if you audition for music schools. And I said, <gasps> what? But me being the competitive person that I am, I was like, okay, let's try. And, um, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I'm super blessed because, you know, I think I was lucky and I've also been blessed with, with a talent, but I've had people along the way that kind of gave me um, the opportunity to succeed or that um, empowered me to succeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm super grateful for that. Um, and, you know, I was, I was, really novice like I didn't really know I mean I'd done some musicals and, and done mm -hmm. stuff but I, I mean there were some people that you know I've been studying voice for years and like were prepared to go to college and audition for these schools I was totally new mm. um, I learned a 24 Italians aria and <laughs> um, I like a Gilbert and Sullivan song and I, I don't even remember it was like an, another musical theater song and uh, like a monologue and I auditioned for a couple schools and I didn't know where to go or what I wanted to do. I knew that because I had kind of balanced athletics and arts, I did think that I was gonna transfer well to a fully conservatory mm. experience. So schools like, I had a friend who had auditioned for Juilliard and some other schools the year before me and I knew that that kind of wasn't going to be my place. I felt like I needed to have um, a quote unquote normal college experience where I could go yep. to football games and, and just, you know, that, that was kind of the life that I had grown up with. And I, and I didn't think that I was ready for that intensity, that level of intensity that comes with a conservatory. But with that said, University of Miami, I think combined those two things for me in a way that didn't make it seem intimidating. It was a very well-endowed music school that had a lot of different program avenues that I could take. And I also liked that Miami had a big school vibe, but a very small school footprint. One of the schools that I auditioned for was Boston University. And yeah. was, it was really kind of between Boston University and Miami. The difficulty for me with Boston University was they didn't have a musical theater major. It was either you were a theater major with that you could have an emphasis with music or you were a classical voice major. And I had a hard time really deciding which direction I wanted to go. Um, and like I said, my dad was a huge opera fan. So mm -hmm. I, had, um, I had an inclination towards that initially. And I also felt that singing opera is one of the hardest things you can do. I mean, that's like kind of a pinnacle of vocal, um, I guess, level of singing. Um, and being the competitive person that I am, I wanted to do the best. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of um, was leaning that direction initially. And, uh, but then I, I was nervous that if I had committed to Boston University and didn't feel like that was the right fit, that I would have a harder time switching to theater. 
but I did do their summer program, six to eight weeks of very intensive music experience. You're working on taking voice lessons every day, your music theory, you're working with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I mean, it was really extraordinary experience. And for me, that really ignited that bug for the classical music and the, the, the commitment to the day in, day out of music. So when I went to Miami, I had initially uh, started as a musical theater major. I had selected mm. to go as a musical theater major. And I went, I did the first like half of the semester. And, you know, I look back and I say, you know, I wonder what it would have been like if I had stayed in the program. Um, but I did end up switching to classical voice um, halfway mm. through the first semester. And part of that reason was because of that summer I had been so intensive in the music side of things that I felt in the music theater program at Miami in the initial, initial semester, it was much more acting based and dance based. And the music was kind of secondary, you know, to some degree. And I really was kind of missing that. That felt like my kind of um, the thing that I wanted to hang my hat on. Theatrically, as an actor, I think that was probably what I needed to spend my, my time on. You know, the, the journey was interesting. It was different. By switching over to classical voice, it made me have a few more challenges, I think, when I moved to New York, when I decided to kind of pursue a, a, a theatrical career. Um, but I think it all also happened in the timing that it was supposed to. And what's fascinating to me is that you have gone on to do such a wide range of shows that use so many different styles of voice and technique. And I have a feeling that ha that has your training at the University of Miami has a lot to do with your ability to be able to switch on a dime. I mean, you've done things like American Idiot on your feet. Ultimately, how do you think your training at Miami has prepared you for now a career in the theater industry? Yeah, you know, I think that um, having a foundation is always the most important thing. When you're building a, um, a career as a professional, understanding what your ability is and, and building that foundation um, is going to help you to explore and reach kind of um, the extremes of what you're able to accomplish. And, um, you know, when you study classical voice, you study proper breath support and the way to kind of create open space and, um, you know, the cleanest, purest sound that you can create. Um, so for me, creating that foundation of knowing how to do that healthfully, powerfully and sustained um, allowed me to then play after that. And I always kind of joke that a job that I did um, out of college was kind of my master's in performance <laughs> music. And I had worked at this review show in Pennsylvania, and it was a review show that highlighted a lot of different styles of singers. I got to watch these amazing singers. There was a, there was a girl that did like Celine Dion covers. There was yeah. a guy who did um, like country, old school country songs. There was a crooner. And I, I was like kind of fascinated by how all these different voices created their sound because they all sounded so different and they interpreted music differently. And I was kind of that guy that was like in between. I, <laughs> I did all the pop tenor stuff and all the kind of more legitimate Broadway stuff. 
Um, but I, I found myself like, all right, well, how does this guy sing the country stuff? Like, how does he right. make that sound? And then like, I, I was like, okay, well, how's a crooner like making that sound? And I would like play with how, I would literally record myself and see how, if I could make that sound. And I think I was able to do that because of the training that I had. So I knew this mm. is my foundation. This is my base. And then how do I adjust things to make that sound that I want? And I think it really, really, really helped me in the musical theater world because there's such a wide range of style. In American Idiot, which was opposite Phantom <laughs> of the Opera, those could not be more opposite on the spectrum. And I don't think I would have booked a show like American Idiot had I not kind of taken that time to mess around and, and figure out how to make that sound. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, and, and I would not have survived that show, I think. If you listen to the American Idiot album, <laughs> the tenor line, the entire show is above the staff. I mean, you're just like, <laughs> you know, crazy. Screaming. And then meanwhile, you're like headbanging, you know, and like, <laughs> it's like all kinds of going crazy directions. So, you know, there was, there was people that struggled, you know, and I mean, it was an amazing cast and we were very lucky, but, you know, people dealt with injuries and mm. with, with vocal stamina issues in that show for a long time. And so I definitely think that building that foundation and really trusting that if you have that base, then you can kind of start adding other little skill sets within your kind of um, toolboxes. People like Talk to me about your transition then from, from college and then you graduated. And then what was it like going from that to the quote unquote real world? Yeah. You know, uh, New York scared me. I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was very fortunate in growing up that I, there was really nothing that I ever needed. It, I wasn't afraid of not um, being able to survive, yeah. but it was also very important to me moving to New York that I would be able to make a living and do this on my own and not yeah. have to rely on my parents. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that should take that help if they need it. Um, for me, it was, my dad was, had been a doctor and I think he had hoped that I would go in that direction. So it was important to me to show him that, or give thanks to him in, in supporting me on this journey and not saying that like I needed his help, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was really important to me to like figure out how to make a little bit of money so that I was ready to go to New York and not have to day one, get a survival job. I'm a type of person that kind of has to go all in and it's yeah. hard for me to kind of, um, split my focus and be as successful as I can be. So I decided to actually take a cruise ship job. And I sang mm -hmm. on a cruise ship right out of uh, college. I think I saved like eight or $10,000. And I said, okay, I can go to New York. I can get a sublet. I have my rent covered for a while. And I, as long as I'm like not going crazy and spending money everywhere, <laughs> like I can actually focus on the thing that I want to focus on. And uh, it it paid off because at that point in time, then I was able to really focus on auditioning and mm -hmm. I did the non-equity thing, morning wake-ups and sign-ups and, you know, hoping to get seen. I didn't have a showcase because I was a voice major, so I had, I didn't have an agent and, you know, I had to, I had to kind of find my own path. And there was a lot of things that I was learning on the fly too, because having been a, a voice major, 
I didn't have kind of some of the musical theater basics. I think I'm pretty adaptable. So I was able to kind of just learn from my surroundings and my experiences. And I ended up booking a national tour, um, a non-ec tour. That was like my doctorate. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely uh, learned a lot. Okay. We played 111 cities in 200 shows. It was almost every single night was almost a, a one-nighter. 10 months. Literally our lifestyle for that show was you get on the bus in the morning, drive to the venue, do your sound check. Then you go to the hotel, check in, <laughs> come back to the theater, do your show, go home, go to sleep and do it all over again the next day. I mean, oh it was my God. Madness. And I look back and I'm like, God bless my younger self and anybody that still is capable of doing that. <laughs> I could not do that. Um, but it was truly um, an amazing lesson for me because, you know, when you're in college and you're, you're younger and you, you don't have as much responsibility, you can, you can go have a drink or you can go do, you know, things yeah. that you don't um, feel the repercussions of so much the next day. But with a role like that and the responsibility that was on my shoulders, I, I mean, I lived like a social hermit. I mean, they used to call me H2OR because I would walk around with like a giant jug of water and I would, I mean, I would drink like five liters of water a day. It was probably not even healthy for me, but um, I, I, you know, I, I had to live a different kind of life and it was tough because one of my best friends who was my best man at my wedding was in that show with me. And wow. I mean, they were in the ensemble and they were like partying living their good life and I'm like over there like you know like a little saint in the corner like <laughs> drinking water and steaming and drinking throat coat you know um but I learned a lot because it was a very demanding show I came to New York and I I kind of had a little bit of a rude awakening because you know when you're kind of the lead in an on tour you kind of think like you're like killing it you know and there's a lot of really good people <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not getting seen for anything and uh, <laughs> I didn't have an agent and so you know but having that experience and creating some relationships which I think are really important in our industry is to is to create good relationships and to be somebody that people can rely on yeah. and that people want to work with um, then people will offer a lending hand and they'll help you and uh, you know I had um, the choreographer and the, um, the director of, of that tour reached out to a couple agents and um, oh, wow. and, and said, hey, you know, I think you should take a look at this guy. I actually didn't sign with any of those agents. At that point, I had the beard, but I was like baby-faced Omar. I think because I had played like a more, generally more mature character at that point in time, um, I thought that I was competing in that realm, but I, mm. I, I wasn't. You know, I really needed to be thinking about like, high school musicals and like yeah you know, Mia. and so that was kind of and I think that's where maybe some of those agents were like I don't know that he knows his place yet hmm. and I'm actually glad that that happened because it kind of made me kind of assess where I was and um, I ended up getting my equity card doing high school musical at North Shore Music Theater and yeah. and that was kind of my my first equity job and yeah. working really talented folks that have gone on to do some great stuff, but it was a really young cast. And it kind of made me realize, oh, okay, this is what, this is where I am right now. I ended up taking a class uh, in the city that had a showcase at the end of the class for a couple of agents. 
And at that point is where I met my agent. All of those things led me up to that point when I did get an agent that I was ready because when when you do get an agent, they're going to start sending you, if they see that you have the potential to play X, Y, and Z, they're going to start getting you into those big rooms and start competing with the big folks. Right. And if I had not been ready, casting would have been like, "Mm, I mean, (laughs) there's something there, but he's not ready. (laughs) And, 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 and unfortunately it's harder to come back from those kind of like eh, places, you know? And so I'm super grateful that the relationships and the experiences and the opportunities that I had when I did end up getting the agent, I was able to go into the rooms and excel and succeed. And um, yeah, I mean, literally as soon as I got an agent, I started booking like uh, bigger, bigger stuff. And and right after that, I did book American Idiot. And yeah, the, you know, the journey kind of really elevated from there. Molly Brown, crazy story with that. I literally was 10 years with that show. When, wow. I started, when I started that show was right before American Idiot, actually. did the first staged reading in Denver at the New Place Summit. And at that point in time, I was playing their son. I was playing Larry Brown, like Molly and JJ Brown's son. We ended up doing five years later, we did the out of town, the big out of town in Denver. Mm-hmm. We thought that it was going to come to New York. Kathleen Marshall mm-hmm. directed Dick Scanlon. We had President of NBC was Bob Greenblatt was behind uh, you know the production, and we thought it was coming into New York. And then you know, as many things happen, they don't. And mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into that decision, but it didn't end up happening. And so we were really bummed. And so about another three years went by, and we ended up doing it again at the Muni. I think that was like kind of the last push to see if we were going to get it to New York. Okay. And there was a lot of interest and, and then a lot of little things just kind of like eh, timing and, and availability. And mm-hmm. Beth, Beth was our star and she was going to do angels in America. So then there was, a, there was things that kind of um, held up the process, but eventually we got the call that we were going to make, um, do it off Broadway in a very intimate setting, which think about this. <laughs> so the first time we did it at Denver Center, it was in the thrust, intermediate kind of like size. And then we moved it to the Muni, which is like the biggest stage in the country, like massive and credit to Kathleen Marshall. She's a freaking genius. And then when we go to Off-Broadway, <laughs> cast is literally half. And oh. the tiny little like space where we like kind of morph the pieces all around. And I mean... So a testament to the piece um, and, and Dick Scanlon and Kathleen to shepherd a story to be told in three vastly different ways. But, we, you know, it was super rewarding. And what was cool about the show was that I had been playing this one role up until Off-Broadway. And then I assumed <laughs> uh, a role because I had kind of grown out of my, my youth. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years and I literally said like initially like I like when we did the Muni I was like I was like um I think I might I mean do you still see me playing like 16 I don't know if that works um but the good thing is I'm short and so at the Muni short young you know you get to see people with a magnifying glass so I got to assume this role was a dream this is the first time in a professional show especially in New York where I sang like I was trained in college. 
it was such a wonderful full circle for me. Cross our fingers, we, you know, we had a plan to uh, record an album. Um, oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, immortalize that, I guess. And so I hope we do get a chance to do that um, in the future when, when all this passes. But we, we were part of the closure. So we were, we were working off Broadway when this all wow. happened. And um, sadly, I don't think that we'll come back. But, you know, I'm so happy that we ended up achieving that dream. You know what I mean? That, that journey, which a lot of shows don't always get that opportunity. Like you said, you were performing up until the pandemic. The pandemic shuts everything down. And I know that eventually you moved back to Atlanta. What was behind your decision to move back down south? And where do you see yourself in the future? It was not an easy decision. We really went back and forth. And initially, both my wife and I, we were doing shows in New York. And um, once our shows closed, we said, Ooh, we also felt like we may need to exit New York temporarily, but it was like, let's go to my parents in Florida. Um, but then there was a concern about like, we didn't want to potentially infect my parents. They're mm -hmm. at risk, you know, they're older. So we were concerned. But what we ended up doing was we quarantined for two weeks, packed up the stuff that we needed. We packed up the car. And after two weeks, we just drove straight down to Florida. And then we kind of like encapsulated ourselves for like three days. We stayed down there actually for three months, which was God bless my wife, because, you know, if anybody out there has, you know, in-laws or is married, you know, my parents are great. Don't get me wrong, but God bless my wife. It's not always easy living with in you know what I mean? Mm. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, um, we, we were down there. It was, you know, what a wonderful blessing to be able to be down there with my folks and, um, you know, you know, it's like vacation. They're, they're in a retirement community, you know, and I was able to play golf with my dad and, you know, mm -hmm. so it was, it was definitely, um, a best case scenario under the circumstances, but the time came, um, in about, I guess, middle of July where we said, okay, we, we kind of need to make a decision. Like, what are we doing? Are we going back to New York? We're going to wait this thing out in New York. Um, our lease was coming up in New York and we had already been considering moving out to the suburbs. We felt like having a place to go that was a little bit less hectic um, was going to be good for us. So when our lease was up, we kind of were left with a decision. We debated for a long time. We decided that Atlanta was something that we had had our eyes on to some degree because of the film and television scene down here that's been growing. And I have a lot of friends that have done well down here. We had said that one of the reasons why Atlanta was not really in the cards for us was because New York was really our home base. But with theater being shut down for the foreseeable future, we said, look, if there was ever a time for us to go to Atlanta, it's now. We found a great spot. It's mind-blowing how much you get for your money down here compared to New York. <laughs> <laughs> at, at this point, we're flexible. Our commitment has been New York for so long. Now, you know, could there be a world where Atlanta provides some great opportunities for us to get involved in the film and television um, side of things, which we've done a little bit of, and perhaps be able to have dual residency and be able to kind of do stuff in New York and do stuff here? Um, and that's easier for me and for us because we have family here. Right. Uh, and, you know, again, these are all lucky scenarios in my life that have kind of led to where we are. 
I will say we miss New York. We miss uh, a lot of the energy of New York. We miss the cultural, creative community. We hope that opportunity comes back for us to to come back to New York when, when things have uh, kind of leveled out. Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling you'll you'll both be back, but I'm excited to see where this next journey takes you because you're absolutely right. You took advantage of really shitty situation and are making the best of it. And that's really all we can do right now. Everything down here in Atlanta is all self-tape. And we've done self-tapes mm. before. Obviously, um, you know, we both my wife and I have been on tour. So that's an, a very common thing to have to do yeah. for, for projects. I think the cool thing about being down here is we've been able to get a decent amount of auditions for for things that are shooting here in Atlanta and I've kind of geeked out in in the in the self-tape stuff and like directing and like figuring that working with my wife on scenes and setting up lighting and and being able to kind of really make a good quality self-tape and work with um her on scenes and and so it's been really fun to kind of play and um, I, I don't know. I've really enjoyed that. And I've helped coach a couple friends of mine and, 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 um, and, and students that I work with on how to maximize their self-tape stuff. And there's kind of a technique to it. And I think mm. that when, when you kind of unleash those things, you'll be able to kind of really see a difference in the quality of your tapes. Um, and I think that it's, it's, been a result of our success as well as is kind of adapting with the times and figuring out how to make ourselves as marketable as possible and your wife as you said is also in the entertainment industry she's uh she's super talented i'm her biggest fan and i couldn't say more nice things about her because i think she's just incredible how has that been having someone who's also in the entertainment industry with you because I know I'm sure there have been incredible moments you I, I've seen that you guys both performed together I saw that you did Evita together like yeah, what yeah. a dream it has it ever been challenging also to balance a relationship within the industry well I think that um relationships in in the industry are difficult always yeah um and it's not so much um it's more about the the commitment to your craft your craft and as an artist sometimes you end up putting that first um yeah. and and some people end up sacrificing the relationship and the bond and the commitment that happens because you get caught up with you know the pursuit of your own career and, and mm. at some points in times it can be selfish and I think that when Ariana and I met each other, we were at the place where we were ready and willing to put the other person first. And by being able to do that, it's freed us both up to be able to do the things that we want because we're both supporting each other's journey. We've been lucky also that we've had opportunities to work together. Um, when she was doing Cats in New York um, and I was at On Your Feet, mm-hmm. a role opened up in on your feet that I felt she was right for and um she had her agent submit her for it and she ended up moving from cats over to on your feet so that was the first opportunity for us to work together and then she was um the Gloria Stanley and uh I I was the Emilio cover and we got the opportunity to go on together and that was like and it was it was really funny when it happened because we kind of like giggled with each other because it was like so weird (laughs) It was it was a dream to get to do that, and then you know she 
she's gone on to do um, some some really cool projects. And then we got the chance to do um, Evita together in a really cool new version um, at the Bay Street Theater in the Hampton. Mm. It was really interesting and fun to play that and to get to like experience that with my wife. Mm -hmm. And it's a blessing. And it's very difficult many times in this industry to get to work with your significant other. Um, so we've been very lucky to do that, um, especially if you take jobs out of town and you have to be apart for a period of time, that, that's tough, you know? And we've mm -hmm. had to do that on occasion, but it, like I said, it always takes commitment. And we always say that we don't wanna spend more than three weeks apart. So if, if one of us is working on a job, like we fly out, even if it's yeah. for just a day, you know? And if we're both yeah. working on a show, like our day off on a Monday, you fly out, spend the day together and then come back, you know? And, and um, that's worked for us it changes things when you're in a relationship, especially mm -hmm. a committed relationship um, in this industry, you know, it, you, and I think it's important as a young actor to be somewhat selfish because mm -hmm. there are opportunities that you have to be willing to just go and jump and do um, because opportunities come and go and you have to, you have to kind of just be willing to say, yes, let's go. Um, and I think that's difficult when you're in, in, in a relationship when you're young um, and haven't had those experiences already. Mm. Not saying that that's not possible. I think it's totally possible. And every, every person has a certain uh, threshold for what um, they're capable of, of, of doing. But um, yeah, that, that kind of was our journey. And, and like I said, I think we met at the right time. We really, yeah. we really meet at the right time where we were both ready and, and able to kind of make those quote-unquote sacrifices um, wow together. I wish you both the best of luck I know this time is just totally unprecedented as everyone's been saying but more so for our industry and I just I just want to thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom thank you for having me I love what I do and I'm grateful that I've been able to do it for so long and yeah you know I also feel that it's our duty as people that have done it to share with those behind us. Well said. Well, thank you, Omar. I hope you have a good rest of your day in Atlanta, hot Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to get a little chilly. We're getting that fall crisp. Whoa, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> If you've enjoyed today's episode and you found it helpful, I would love it if you could screenshot it, tag at Actor Aesthetic, and share it to your Instagram stories so that I can see who is following along with me there. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and also hit that subscribe button so that you can join me every single week for a brand new episode of the Actor Aesthetic podcast. Until then, this is Maggie Barra signing off. It takes a village. I'll see you next week.